listeners. Welcome to the next session. An advice podcast for game masters seeking help with their next game session. I'm Adam Johns. And I'm Alyssa Johns. Hey. Hey. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's you had a, nothing. I got nothing. You were like, I got that's nothing it. this morning. Podcast <laughs> yeah. over. Yeah. This morning, it's the afternoon. But maybe they're listening to it in the morning. Uh, I got nothing. We're this, like a morning show. This 2 p.m. <laughs> What's going on in the world of um, role-playing games? You were on King 5, the news station that's local to here. Yeah, that nobody that, except for people in Seattle would, would know at all. Yeah. There was a cool, so we participated, Game to Grow, I should say, participated in this great study researching the effects of role-playing games for for personal growth, for social-emotional learning. Uh, and uh, I got to be on the video showcasing the results of the study. It's really funny because a lot of the comments on that video that I saw on Facebook were like, I could have told you the D&D and social skills went together, like, from the 80s. And I feel like a lot of people say that. You know, you uh, we hear that a lot because, you, you know... We're, Doing stuff with Game to Grow, we talk to a lot of people who go, "Oh, this seems so obvious." Like, obviously, that's that's the case, and that's great. And I'm I'm so excited when when people say that. But I will also tell you that I still wind up in the circumstances where I talk to somebody and they go, "I don't get it. Isn't D and D is like exactly the opposite of the thing of socializing?" And I'm like, "Well, obviously, you don't know anything about the game itself or the experience that's happening there." Yeah, it's it, it is sort of un, unreal to me when I run into that. But it, the people who really, in my experience, tend to say like, "Oh, Dungeons and Dragons or role playing games are not a social activity," have never have never watched anything, have never seen what it's like to play the game, have, certainly have never participated in the game, um, because it seems so obvious once you you break down like you're sitting at a table, you're hanging out with your with your friends and and joking and telling stories and clearly being social is is a huge part of this yeah absolutely well we have some people who are asking us questions hey let's about let's do their some, social games let's do that that sounds great <laughs> that's a great idea for a podcast wow Whoa. we should make a podcast we'll call uh, it somebody already started that we'll podcast. call it another uh gathering help <laughs> uh, okay <laughs> yeah go ahead <laughs> i got nothing <laughs> badger Borador, Badger, Barador, Barader, 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 Barader. I don't think that's a word. No, well, router is a word, but not spelled like that. Yeah, Badger. Badger. There you go. The French badger. It's the French badger. So the French badger says, "Museum quests that are not heists." My party is visiting a big city. Among the attractions of that city I've mentioned is a museum, and now my party is adamant on visiting said museum. What are some fun encounters or mini quests I could do that are not heists? I'm definitely willing to adapt and use published one-shots for this. Hmm. Okay. Uh, that's that an interesting idea. Not a heist, N- Adam. Night at the Museum seems like the the most obvious kind of direction to go for this in they, my mind. They go to visit the museum and they get locked in on accident and everything comes alive. And everything comes alive and then they're, I, I guess, maybe fighting their way out or, or maybe they, they take the side of some of the exhibits in the museum to battle against some of the other exhibits in the museum or something. Or, or maybe they just have to put everything back in the in the position they were all supposed to be in before. Oh, yeah. You got to fix it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. 
Ooh, reverse heist. You are stopping a heist. Uh, too close to heist? I might be a little too close to heist. <laughs> might, be a little, might be a little up there. Yeah, all right. That's fair. But, I like but, it. But you could do that where, like, somebody else is trying to steal something, and and that would also explain the sort of locked-in experience, which is maybe they cut the power and, and security doors went off or whatever, and now you're locked into this place. Um and they assume everybody here is just, you know, random patrons of the museum. Nobody's an adventurer, and they're stealing something valuable from the museum, and you're trying to stop them. I like that. All right. Yeah. What if a lich shows up? Okay. Because the museum stole its, uh, what is it called? Phylactery? Yeah. The museum has put it on display, not knowing it is a lich's. Oh, yeah. Because a phy- phylactery... Is isn't it usually like a huge thing? It's like a, it's like a whole laboratory or whatever. I don't know. Does it have to be? I guess not. I mean, no. And and even if it did, it could fit into a bag. I mean, it's a world of magic, so you could say, like, oh, you know, it's stored in this. Their entire phylactery is stored in this jar or whatever. Right there, you go. I was I was imagining like a mummy sarcophagus or something. Sure. Or oh, okay, vampire. A vampire, a vampire. wakes up. <laughs> There's a sarcophagus with a, va- a mummy. Oh yeah, well you could that's do a obvious. classic, classic mummy, you know, horror film. A new item recently brought into the museum is actually cursed. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, what would the curse be? Um, it warps the museum and is slowly disappearing it onto another plane of existence. Ooh, and that could also explain why you're trapped. Right. Um, and uh. And so that now you're trying to defeat this curse in some way. Yeah. That's pretty fun. I think if I went the curse route, I think I'd probably want to also add in some some kind of clear combat. But I like the idea that, that it's warping reality in some way, in some important ways, um, that could then add in like um, uh, puzzles or, or things like that uh, into the experience of, of solving that, right? Now, there's a cursed item. Because one of the things to consider in all of this is, one, is this a one-shot? Mm-hmm. Because if it's a one-shot, then... That's what they want. This is a mini-quest. This right. is a side quest. They want to go visit this museum. Uh-oh, something happened. I guess specifically, I mean, is it one session versus, oh. versus like, it's a mini-quest, that's fine, but it's a few sessions long, uh, which is totally fine to do for a mini-quest. All of my one-shots turn into three shots. It always happens. Yeah, right? It's so hard to build for a single session, especially because for you and I, usually a single session is like less than two hours. Right. Um, Which means that, that, you know, you just don't have, that's one combat. Yeah, and And with our group of friends, getting them settled down and not laughing. Yeah, right. Not not just, you could just make characters and we would would just joke as those characters for the entire session. That would be one session. Yeah, and then it's like, well, we didn't do anything. Thanks, guys. (laughs) But everybody had a great time. Um, I think that the idea of the of the curse is my favorite here because it adds in the ability to be like, oh, you're wandering through the, the you know ancient egyptian room or whatever but now um things are falling on you uh or the room is falling apart or there's a giant pit or it's now filled with snakes and you can't tell what's real and what's not uh or maybe the things that are not real can still hurt you so you could go a lot of different directions it just needs more planning that's a lot more work for a mini quest or one shot it totally is but as opposed to 
you know, if all I want to do is give them a quick combat, they defeat the thing, now it's all over, which is fine if you're going to have, like, a single session and I just want this to be a slight slight sidetrack, um, then that's a fun thing to do. And that would be where something like, um, I think, the phylactery idea or, or the reverse heist I think works really well because then you can just beat, beat up some guys are beat up, you know, a, or the, a weakened lich or something. And, and The night at the museum, but instead it's like a a mimic that has come to life. It only comes to life at night. That could be what the curse is. Oh, there you go. The curse turns the museum into a mimic. The whole museum? The entire museum. Ooh. And now you're trapped inside of a mimic. Do you remember when we did that? We had that question where someone was turning. They wanted to turn the ship the characters oh, yeah. were flying on it was flying an airship into a mimic over time because they like accidentally used wood from a mimic or something like that yeah um or a living ship or something like that yeah yeah uh i think that that'd be colossal elder mimic museum you know you could also somewhere in here go with something like a like a ghost with an unresolved past kind of thing um if you didn't want the whole thing to take place in the museum that's and true. you wanted the museum to just be the starting point of another quest, then you could totally go with that. Or, you know, if you wanted to, to shy a little bit further away from uh, combat and a little bit more into story, you could go with something like there's a curator at the museum and he found out that there's an artifact um, that somebody's trying to sell to him and it sounds like it's going to be a really good deal, but he needs somebody to go check and make sure it's real or something like Absolutely. that. Now you, now you travel there and, and, and investigate the and artifact. And now you have NPCs, you've built out your world a little bit, and the museum can be a place that you can check in on and always have as a mini quest in the future. If a player can't make that session, you can be like, well, this session, the curator has called you to let you know that one of the exhibits um, has a live animal now that thinks the, the wax figures are their parents. You need to help get this pet out of here or whatever. You could maybe even do like a, uh, I think a hilarious NPC here would be like kind of an Indiana Jones-esque character and would give you a lot of opportunity to sort of poke fun at that character. It belongs in the museum. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, like maybe he, that's what he does is he goes and, you know, fetches or or collects artifacts to bring them back to the museum. But maybe the museum is like, he's terrible at it. You really have to help him. Oh my gosh, you have <laughs> to hold this guy's hand. Yeah, because like literally he just puts on a hat and has a whip, which he does not know how to use. Oh no. And you need to like really help him do this. But he has the license and frankly, we don't want to pay for somebody else to get their like museum curator, <laughs> museum gatherer's license because it's really expensive. So he, you got to keep him alive. You got to keep him with you. Just make sure he gets there and you know touches it or whatever. Thinks he did something. Da -na -na -na. <laughs> yeah. I found the thing. I found the ancient diamond. Yeah, that keeps us insured. That's the thing that we need, <laughs> you know, from him in that process. Um, what if it's like Mario sixty four? Where Mario can jump into the paintings. What if there's a painting that oh. is actually an entrance to another world and you have to protect it or find the painting or reach it before someone else does? That's kind of like a heist, anti-heist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I like that idea, and that's a little similar to Night at the Museum, too. Right. You could have some of the things from the painting, like, coming out from the painting, uh, and maybe they're they're like, no, you have to come back or whatever, or... Um, or you know you need to resolve something in this painting world uh, <gasps> that only exists through this through this. What avenue. if there is a painting 
of one of the players from a thousand years ago. Ooh, that's good. I like that. Um, dun, dun, dun. And now you're like, what? Um, but that, uh, fair warning, probably leads to a time travel plot. Absolutely. Uh, and the and time travel plots are always a, a gigantic hassle to keep track of. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. I love time travel plots. But boy, they are hard to track and, and manage. What if the statues in the statue room are actually uh, Stone Golem's garden? Mm. Like like they like, like a garden of stone golems? Well, I'm just imagining, you, you know the terracotta um, army soldier mm-hmm. statues? I'm just imagining all of those come to life. But it's just the it's just like you have to find out where the actual golem is. But you meanwhile you're like fighting off all these mini statues. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, that's fun. That's a fun idea. Oh, but not don't do not do the the statues from Doctor Who the the angel ones. No. <laughs> Those are so Weeping creepy. Angels. They're so creepy. Yeah. I can't. Although you know horror theme uh, fits well here in in like the mummy idea or something along those lines too, or the vampire. So if you wanted to go horror, that's a lot of options. I think yeah. the cool thing about the museum is that artifacts in a museum already kind of feel like they're writing a story. You know, the 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 experience of a museum in my mind in real life is that you're you're observing sort of really interesting times of history. Absolutely. That, that feel almost made up anyway. And there can be different kinds of museums. I mean, we go to children's museums a lot because we have a five year old, but that's true. It could be a children's it museum. It could be a children's museum. <laughs> um but there are also, like, we went to a museum that basically just had um, stuff from the local region. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the one? Sonoran Desert Museum? No, not that one. The one up in Flagstaff. Oh, uh, the... Northern uh, Arizona. Northern Arizona Museum. Yeah, that one. Cultural Museum or Culture, something. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, it had a lot of dinosaurs. And yeah, I was like, I was surprised. Because there are dinosaur bones and stuff in the, in the area and a lot of... Um, uh, There's also like artwork the, and stuff like the that. The Museum of Glass or the Rock and Roll Museum. That's totally true. Museum of History and Industry, or um, you know, and it could be an art museum. Uh, I think there's a lot of possibilities of what kind of museum it is. Mm-hmm. And you could fantasy flare it, right? A Rock and Roll History Museum would be like Bards, Battle of the Bards through the Ages. Yeah, you could go with like um, Pick a Destiny. And uh, if you wanted to do reverse heist on this, and somebody's trying to steal the the ancient pick of the of the bard, you know what a reverse heist is? Yeah. If we're comparing it to movies, national treasure. I have to steal the Declaration of Independence I, before I, someone else does. I keep using oh, reverse oh. heist, but really, a reverse heist is probably just putting something back. Yeah, <laughs> you're breaking in, but you're just trying to put something back. I get stopping a heist feels like a, a, I mean, a, a more accurate term. You could do a real reverse heist where you, like, someone um, looks really shady and weird and you, like, confront them and you figure out that they are trying to put something back. So then you help them. Yeah, that'd be interesting. You know, their, their, uh, their brother stole this thing from the museum and replaced it with a fake one, but they knew it was wrong and now they're trying to And he has to he has to be able to get his brother clear from this, um, because they're twins and they would be tried as one person. <laughs> because the rules of that world are that's, that's <laughs> you're the twins. Rule. We're gonna try you as one person. You're the same person. Yeah. <laughs> um hey a French Badger, Badger yeah. B. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for a good question. I hope you have a really good session. I actually really want to know what you do. So let us know. Yeah, let us know.
That's great. Let's take a break. Okay. Break. Did you have a good break? That was a great break. (laughs) I didn't do anything. I just sat here. I sipped my tea. My dad got me this mug that the tea stays hot. But it's weird because now my tea has to connect to Bluetooth. And I feel old that... Why does everything have to be Bluetooth? Your mug. Your mug is connected to your phone. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that weird? Yeah. I have to charge my mug. Can it can it ring? Can you do video chat with somebody in the reflection in the, in the tea? Not yet, but it's coming. That's that's the, that's the, the XL. X, that's the XL version. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have an Ask a GM. Actually, we have two Ask a GM questions. Ooh, we'll see what fun. we have time for. All right. Our first Ask a GM question comes from Vina Schnitzel. V- Vina <laughs> Schnitzel. That's great. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Vina. Vina Schnitzel. I love it. Uh, Vina Schnitzel says, the rogue finds a safe, uh, DC-15, to unlock in the old abandoned house. They make a thieves' tool check with a total of 13. And now what? Do you let the rogue roll again to unlock it? What if they roll an 11 next time? Should they just roll until they get it? Would you say that the lock is impossible to open because they missed it on the first try? Would you just bypass rolling and say there's no real consequence or risk of failure if they don't get it? Would you do degrees of failure, such as their thieves' tools or the lock itself breaking or a trap they didn't seem to notice, catching them on a bad enough roll? Would you just use their passive ability? Would you increase the DC on the next attempt? Would you summon a random guard in the area to give them a limited number of attempts before an encounter? The way I handle this is always different, and I just wanted to hear how you handle this situation. Oh. Venus Sigil, that was a lot of questions. That, that was. was like one, two, three, four, five. Also, a lot of great ideas. Six. Seven, eight, nine. That was over ten questions, Vina. That, um, you should have sent me ten emails. Come on. <laughs> Actually, please don't ever do that. This is lovely. This is much better. This is lovely. I think, Vina, you're on the right track, which is you don't have to do it the same way every single time. And these are a lot of great ideas for how to, you know, continue to make it interesting. Um, as far as the actual rules work, um, you, you, if you are not under any kind of time pressure and there's no specific rule to say that like once you fail to pick a lock it is now unpickable um generally you just get to take 10 or take 20 on on any of those circumstances so he he means minutes not dollars you're not bribing the dm although it would be okay with me and and what it means is (laughs) is you take 10 minutes which means you don't have to roll a check and you just get whatever the possible um result could be in that in that time usually take 10 means you take your skill bonus and add 10 um but uh i've seen other dms also house rule like it's it's basically like a non-crit 20 you're just going to take all the time you need to to do this task to the best of your ability um i also think that some of the answers that i would give for this kind of thing depend a lot on what's in that chest oh yeah absolutely and a lot on how this character, this player is like, I would be okay with some of their thieves tools break. And the next time they roll, there's a bit of a disadvantage. But if the uh, contents of the chest are 
pretty crappy, that would be a big blow. Yeah, and and I feel like um, I wouldn't want to do that every time. You know, Absolutely. every time you fail to to open a chest or a safe or a door, like your thieves' tools break, and oh well, that stinks. And now it's not now it's not openable. Right, that uh, would be not cool. Yeah, that wouldn't be a good, um, you know, uh, a good way to go for this. Actually, my my instinct on this kind of thing is to take some influence and um, ideas out of something like the Apocalypse World engines or Dungeon World, um, where you failing to make to succeed a check means that the game master gets to make in those games what's called a hard move against you. Absolutely. Um, so I I get to choose whatever I want as the game master to what is the consequence of this. And that could be a choice that I give you. Um, do your thieves' tools break, or is the safe now unopenable? Um, maybe those are two separate choices. Like or you maybe, can try, you can try again, but you don't have thieves' tools. For or maybe it. your thieves' tool broke in the lock. Right. Um, and, or or does do you make a sound that alerts a guard? Um, you know, you get to make a choice somewhere in here of of what it is, or. I just make choices on my own to say, here are what the consequences are of of you not succeeding on this check, which I think is a perfectly fine way to, to up the stakes and make the experience more interesting. It could be also um, maybe you have a degree of what is in the safe. Maybe on a really good check, you uh, were able to open the chest in such a way that it didn't ruin what was inside. I will say the one thing that I would avoid doing in this is I wouldn't just continue to roll until you get a high enough. Yeah, roll. that it's, it's it's boring, it's uninteresting. The only circumstances Nobody wants that. The only circumstances in which I would say, okay, you get to make multiple checks is if there was also something action packed happening right along with it. Like you're in the middle of combat or you only get so many checks beforehand or I make it very clear that you need three successes before you get three failures. Um, I, I, you have to, you have to provide it some clear limits that then make it more interesting, uh, as a, as a part of that, as a, as opposed to just roll until you get, you know, an 18 or better is just not an interesting, you know, that's, that's not an interesting way to, to solve that. Absolutely. So all of your questions, yes, do all of those things. <laughs> yeah. Not all not at all, the same not time. Not once. Yeah. <laughs> but keep, keep up the great work of having different things you can do to make everything more interesting like you can pivot to any of these and they will all be right you can also it's okay to say you know the chest or the safe is not openable via lock picking now if what's in the chest is not dependent on the you know progress in the story or anything like that and it's just like a money or a cool magic item or something like that and now you provide the opportunity for maybe some of your other players to take a stab at it. A literal stab at it. Yeah. Or and, a smash at it. And now your barbarian player tries to, you know, bash it up or you, you drop it out of a, you know, third story window or you, <laughs> or you, you know, your wizard uh, uh, casts knock or whatever. Now their knock spell is finally useful, um, even though there's a rogue in the group. Uh, or cast fireball on it and just blows the whole thing up. Um, maybe unfortunately melting all the all the money inside of it. <laughs> so um, sometimes that can be, be saying no to the rogues can feel harsh, but if you know your group and you know, hey, that doesn't mean you can't open it. It just means you can't open it with lock picking. 
right is is a really clear invitation to the rest of the group to to go oh let's try some other stuff right see or what else we can do let's take it with us yeah or take it with us or or we give up and and say like you know what this is not worth our time um, you always want to if you're if you're going to provide that kind of that kind of hard barrier you need to make sure that whatever's in the safe or the chest is is not dependent on proceeding through whatever it is that you're, that you're doing. I would never make that choice if if the, the there's a potential for the players to go, well, then we're not just not going to do that, and now my storyline falls apart, or the, you know, uh, we can't can't do any of those things anymore. All right. Hey, thanks, Venus Schnitzel. Yeah, Venus Schnitzel, Venus so good. Um, our next Ask a GM comes from B Bapalupa. B Bapalupa. That's great. I don't have anything to say. That's just a really spectacular name. These <laughs> have been pretty good names. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, I have to say, because Adam has not read this question yet, and I have, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what he says here. Okay, you ready? Yeah, go gonna, for it. And none of you can watch Adam's facial expressions, but I'm going to watch Adam's facial expressions as I read this question to see if he... Uh, okay, ready? So recently, I just had my first session as a DM, and I've been playing D&D for a couple years, but during my session, we engaged in combat, and my wizard positioned himself so that a certain rule would be enacted, but it was one I've never heard of before. He explained to me that the rule is if you and another PC are parallel to each other, basically on opposite sides of one creature, both PCs be... (laughs) Adam's face. Um, basically on opposite sides of one creature, both PCs being within five feet of the creature that the attacking PC would get advantage on his roll. Example, take a three unit by three unit square. Each unit is five feet and the creature is in the exact middle of that three by three area. So 15 feet by 15 and one PC is in the middle left of that area. Another being the middle, right? When one PC makes an attack roll on the creature, they get advantage. He told me it's widely used, but I've never heard of it. Is it as common as he says, do you use this role? If so, do you limit it with a larger party, or is that up to me? I love this so much. Is it great? <laughs> yeah. It's a great question, Bebopalupa. Okay, Bebopalupa, that thing that you're talking about is called flanking. Flanking. Um, flanking does not exist in 5th edition, to be wildly clear. That rule does not exist. If you're playing 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons... That rule does not exist. However, it did exist in 3.5 edition and a bunch of other editions where flanking granted some kind of advantage. Flanking being two characters, two friendly characters are on opposite sides of a monster. And the concept behind it is that the monster can't divide their attention between both of them at the same time. And so they gain a benefit kind of keeping the monster distracted. Now, um, there were, in fact, all these uh, rules around flanking needing to happen for stuff like sneak attack and and being able to get backstab bonuses and all sorts of other other rules that have existed in previous editions of Dungeons and Dragons. Now, personally, the the interpretation I've always had about why they took flanking out of fifth edition was to make the concept of providing an advantage a more broadly applicable concept. One of the problems with flanking in previous editions of Dungeons and Dragons is that you kind of always have to do it because it's a very clear bonus that any two melee attackers can acquire or or any two characters. It doesn't have to be melee attackers, like in this case being a wizard, which seems a really strange character to flank with. <laughs> um, 
And the, and the the challenge with that is that then it's a really, really explicit bonus that only happens under these very specific scenarios, and it, it sort of forces the, the party to maximize this benefit going at it this way, as opposed to being creative and applying, you know, how do you distract or how do you keep this, uh, you know, gain a tactical advantage against this monster in some other way. The other problem with flanking is if you play without using a grid, it can be right. very difficult to describe the process of acquiring flanking. And 5th edition wanted to, to leave things open so that you could play in theory in, in, a, in a theater of the mind where you don't have a grid and all you do is use descriptions or that you could play on a, on a page and on a, on a grid or mini, with minis or any of those things um, the same way. Now, I want to point out, um, Adam, that apparently it is in 5e. On page 251 as what? an optional rule. Oh, okay. All right. So it's an optional <laughs> rule. So it is in 5th edition, kind of. Sort of. Um, yeah, it's interesting because um, you're right. Flanking was such a big deal, and it, you know, you would take feats that would help with flanking. You would you would take a pole arm so that you could still flank even if you were 10 feet away versus 5 feet away. Like, it, it mattered so much. And then taking it out of the main rule set meant that you did have to be more creative, but on the same side, um, I feel like I would think about tactical. I would be less tactical because it wasn't in there. Um, I, I think fifth edition is less tactical. I think the reality of, of looking at, you know, the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons versus 3.5 or Pathfinder or, um, or lots of other, um, you know, positional uh, role-playing games where they rely more on a grid is that they are less tactical, and and that's a choice, right? You're you're it's making a, a choice. Style. It's yeah. a game style. Um, and my my interpretation of this, great to know that it's a that it is a optional, optional rule. rule. Um, but my interpretation has always been, if you are trying to gain some kind of advantage against the monster, then that is up to the interpretation of the game master to decide is the thing you're doing gaining an advantage. Right. I like the way that you described flanking with that the monster can't keep attention on both targets. But, like, if you're fighting a Tarrasque right. and you're at its foot, like, it doesn't care. Well, and, <laughs> and in fact, there were a bunch of monsters that were immune to flanking in, in 3.5 edition because now they have to specify on, on the monster to say... This monster has eyes everywhere and therefore can keep attention on This on monster everything. is literally made of mist. Yeah. So flanking doesn't matter. This is a gelatinous cube. It cannot it cannot, you know, be flanked. Um and similarly, you know, 3.5 edition also had all all sorts of other wild specifiers like uh, inability to sneak attack because this monster has no weak points like a skeleton. Right. Um and therefore you also can't crit against them because there's, you know, a critical hit is an interpretation of hitting a weak point on a monster. Right. Um now I don't necessarily agree with all those determinations, but uh, I think the concept of saying yes, some monsters you can gain an advantage on that way and some monsters you cannot. I think it's very valid. I think I think the as well as maybe that's not the only way you want to gain an advantage. Um, maybe as an archer, I'm not going to flank, but what I am going to do is I'm going to shoot arrows not at the monster but at their feet to keep them distracted. Dance, monkey, dance. Da dance, monkey, dance. And I, I'm going to give up my opportunity to do damage so that the rogue can can you know get a backstab in and do a whole lot more damage that way. Like right. that's great teamwork and should also provide 
the same benefit that something like flanking provides. Now, I also looked up, uh, you can flank huge creatures as long as two allies are on opposite sides. Um, flanking can occur on huge creatures. Mm. And you can flank with familiars. Um, so since familiars are considered allies, then flanking with them works. Um, and then there was a question on spiritual weapon getting flanking in 5e. Yeah. It's not a target, so you can't hit it. So there's an interesting it, question of can it provide flanking? Right. It doesn't count as an ally. But theoretically, the monster is still trying to defend against it. Yeah. Since the spell originates from the caster, if the caster's flanking the enemy, then it casts spiritual weapon and attacks with it. Um, if the weapon is in another position, it gains the benefit from flanking since the attack originated from the caster? Um I would argue that all of these are exactly the reason why flanking was not <laughs> included as a base rule in 5th edition. Um, my, my interpretation would always be, is it providing some kind of a distraction that would then provide some benefit in being distracted? And one of the, the big things here, Bebopalupa, is, is you've got this wizard who, who intended to make a move to provide this, this benefit. Now, whether or not the you want to play by those rules, the clarity for the player to say, what is it you're trying to get out of this? That, I think, is a very important clar clarification because the character, the wizard, w is, is clearly trying to accomplish something. And in this case, putting themselves in danger um, as a squishy character who maybe you know doesn't have as much hit points or armor class as other melee characters might, and and is doing so to benefit another another player in the group because they're not going to gain the the benefits of of uh, you know stabbing somebody with a sword or whatever or maybe they will but but functionally the the idea that they want to do this creative thing to get this this outcome I think is perfectly fine. However, the a way in which they do it is an important thing you have to teach players because you don't you just don't want combat conga lines. It's not just that. That's, that is true. That is very true. <laughs> but it's not just that. There is a process that always needs to exist in role-playing games where the players um, need to check to see if the thing they're doing is a valid, valid in the circumstances they are doing it in. And, and this is where the rules lawyering or rules interpretation part of being a game master is a very important give and take between the players because there are rules and they have very clear guidelines, but you also have so many house rules and so many scenarios that are left to interpretation from the game master. So if you have a player who is coming in and saying like, well, I stab him in the neck and because it's a called shot I and I stabbed him in the neck, he dies instantly. And you don't want that kind of exchange. You don't want the player to determine the outcome right. of what, what it is that they're trying to do before they know whether or not you're going to accept that outcome as a possibility. I definitely have had players at a table that have done that. Right. Um, and, and, and that can be really challenging to teach at times. You can have players who just don't, don't quite understand when are they asking for permission. Is, is this going to get the thing I, I'm hoping to get out of it? And when are they um, you know, just interpreting the rules the way that, that they should be interpreted and therefore they, they know they have leeway? And I, I think that is just a, a, a place that is always a discussion to be having with your players. And you always need to provide the space that if 
if the outcome they were hoping for was impossible and you were never going to allow that, that maybe they can backtrack their answer and provide, you know, their character did a different thing instead. Yeah. Also, flanking can benefit the monster, you know? <laughs> okay. If you get into close melee range, some of those melee attacks are wildly more powerful. Well, I mean, that was actually why flanking was considered pretty fair in 3.5 and stuff like that, because lots of monsters had multiple attacks and could hit, yeah. do a lot of damage. Suddenly, you come in close with an owlbear, and suddenly you got like a claw and a talon and a scratch yeah. and whatever. So it was very dangerous to stand next to the monsters. And I think that's still true in 5th edition. Standing next to the monster, clearly more dangerous for most monsters than standing further away. But it's also always a question of whether or not you're going to have that mechanical benefit as opposed to just a sort of a flavored description of where you are standing. Absolutely. This is a lovely discussion on flanking. Thank you, Bebapalupa. Yeah. Um, and I do hope that, that uh, Bebapalupa, that, that you um, navigate that space with your, with your wizard. If you don't want to do that rule, that's okay. Yeah, you but, don't have to. But that is also um, a, a thing to clarify. And even if you said yes to the wizard and you allowed all of that to happen, you can still say, I don't really want to have that rule because I don't want to have to track that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's okay to say too. And you can say, that was totally fine for that one time. I'm not going to retcon that. It's just moving forward so that you know we're not going to have flanking in that game. That's, that's, a, that's an all right rule or boundary to set. Cool. Hey, Adam, do you want to move on and use that spell? Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Use that spell. I will take that as a yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, use that spell. We are going to do mass heal. Mass heal. Mass heal. It's not more healing. It could be in Spanish. <laughs> mass, mass heal. <laughs> mass yeah. heal. I did not take Spanish. I'm sorry, everyone who speaks Spanish. Um, Mass Heal is a ninth level evocation, a casting time one action range of 60 feet, components VS, duration instantaneous. A flood of healing energy flows from you into injured creatures around you. You restore up to 700 hit points divided as you choose among any number of creatures that you can see within range. Creatures healed by the spell are also cured of all diseases and any effect making them blinded or deafened. This spell has no effect on undead or constructs. Player's Handbook, page 258. This is huge! It's huge. It's also a ninth level spell. You, you might say, it's massive. It's massive. It's a pretty massive heal. Massive heal. I like this because this really is, is what this you know, very high level spells should be like. This is what this cleric, like, yeah, like, like this is their like, I'm a healer cleric. I'm like, healing I, you. I, I, would, I would even go so far as to say like this, the, the like hit point limits on this like shouldn't even be there. Like it should just be you heal everyone to full maximum hit points uh, when you cast this spell. Everybody, and, and you just have like a target limit or something. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a total of, well, I guess I see the advantage of the hit points thing because if you've got, you know, a town full of people or something like that, yeah, you can right? mass heal and, and heal, you know, all these very low level NPCs. I mean, what if you guys befriended a dragon and the dragon is close to death and you need to heal the dragon, oh, but yeah. also yourself? You're going to dump, dump uh, 400, 400 hit points, hit points over there. into the dragon and a few other into, into a few other spots. And it cures them? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I like, I like that too. Um, it's pretty fun. Ninth level spells are always this 
really challenging space because usually you only get one a day. Yep, and, and you have to get up to this level to get. Oh yeah, you're level spells. seventeen or eighteen, you know, cleric or or wizard by the time you have access to any kind of ninth level spell. So the it is it is challenging to get to. It takes a you know, you have to be really high level and they. You, you have to really make a choice because there's a lot of really cool ninth level spells. And so you're having to choose, do I want to use this one or or that other totally awesome ninth level spell? So they all should be like powerful enough circumstantially that it makes it really worthwhile. When you cast Mass Heal, you should like describe the crap out of it. I mean, like oh, this is your moment. Yeah. This is this is that movie making moment. Um, you can't just be like, eh, I heal everybody. Woohoo. It should be like, I take my staff, drive Oof. it into the ground, and I pr- and I look up to the heavens and I a beam of light shoots down and glows into the and it just spreads out and and I and I name people as I'm as I'm you know, picking, love- choosing and That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's sad it doesn't have an effect on undead um, or constructs. Uh, only that I I feel like mass heal for undead should kill them because it should be like radiant damage. Yeah, I mean they they used to do that in old in old versions of D and D that heal spells could be used against undead right in order to deal damage. And they also allowed for the harm spells, specifically the harm line of spells from the cleric to heal undead. Ooh. Um. So you had to. So if you messed up, if you messed up, you might end up you healing the bad guy or hurting your friend. Dang. <laughs> um, if like your friend is a, uh, you know, an undead but never told you, oh, no. and you try to heal him. <laughs> um, the reason I picked this spell is because I knew we had extra ask a GM questions, so I knew that this conversation would be. Yeah, it's awesome. It's pretty. I mean, it's a pretty like, awesome spell. There's it. not really. Um, a whole lot extra to say about it. Uh, I do feel like you could even add a little extra juge to this spell as a as a game master um, based on the scenario or the the opportunity. In general, I give a lot of leeway if somebody's casting a really high level spell and is using up those those spell lots spell slots to accomplish it, especially if it has great plot line orientation or or something along those lines like i want to heal everybody in the city like i wouldn't make them count hit points Mm -hmm. um or or restrict to the 60 feet you know on on something like that we're gonna fly up the whole town is um is sick with this curse right and i'm going to fly up and we're going to um mass heal the clouds and it's going to rain down healing and, healing, healing and disease and disease he you know curing right uh um, like, rain yeah like man you get me up there let's do this and yeah. then and then it becomes this this exciting plot moment yeah i would totally allow for that kind of thing i want to make especially these high level spells um versatile they they are it's the kind of magic that that can accomplish the thing you want it to accomplish even if you're now getting into the realm of there isn't a spell that does that perfect that's exactly what i want you to be able to do with a with a ninth level healing spell uh yeah so long as that is a a thing i want to allow to be possible in this world absolutely i mean if you can if you can mass heal on a cloud maybe you can mass heal a field right and all the water in the field will help restore the crops where they used to be and like you're you're dumping a ninth level spell to do this oh yeah and and you're you're also um 
you know, generally going to be, it's not like you're, you're overcoming, you know, a wildly challenging bad guy or anything in that, in that one particular moment, you're, you are creatively demonstrating the, the tremendous power your character has to help the NPCs of the world or help solve issues or challenges that are happening in the world. And I think that's perfect. That's exactly what a, you know, wildly high level adventurer should be doing. Absolutely. That's great. Good choice. Hey, thanks. Um, Hey, thanks for uh, uh, episode 76. Hey, thanks for listening. Yeah, it was fun. It was lovely. It was, it was wonderful. You're, you're wonderful listener. Oh, he was looking at me when he said it, but he... he, But I was talking to you. He put that little caveat on. He (laughs) likes you more than me. (laughs) You can uh, totally contact us by going to our website at nextsessionpodcast.com. You can submit a question there. Um, We did get a question um, this week, by the way, from a Matthew who wanted to, again, let me know that my Wix uh, website... Could be better. Oh, we yeah. get we, thanks, Matthew. I, I swear I get at least three, <laughs> and I go like, "Ooh, another question!" Oh, every time. <laughs> so thanks, Matthew. Shout thanks. out to Matthew. Shout out to Matthew for letting who me know works on websites. I guess that they could help me get to the top of Google. Oh, I'm sure. Woohoo! Okay. Um, but if you listener want to reach out to us and talk to us, we are at the next session on both Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, and you can also find us on Instagram at Next Session Podcast. So I'm Adam Johns. And I'm Alyssa Johns. Tune in next time and we'll help you plan, plan, prep for your next session. We will plan prep it. Goodbye.